Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Luba Gretchen Shirley. She is the founder of Vote Mama and the former congressional candidate in New York's 2nd Congressional District. Luba Gretchen Shirley, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much and for having me. As I mentioned in the introduction, you ran against Representative Peter King in New York's 2nd Congressional District. What made you want to run for public office? <laughs> um, Peter King has been in office for 25 years, and he has consistently voted against working people in our district and across the country. I honestly had no intention of running for Congress. I worked in economic development and poverty alleviation. I had a one-year-old and a three-year-old when I launched the campaign. It was the last thing I thought I would do, but I could no longer sit back and, and watch his voting record and watch what was happening to people in our district. And I actually asked Peter King if he would hold a town hall, and he told me that it would only diminish democracy. And the only reason I even got a meeting with him was because I held a protest in front of his office with hundreds of people when he came out in support of the Muslim ban. And when he told me that a town hall would diminish democracy, I've got to tell you, I started thinking about running. I, I ended up organizing a town hall for him, and hundreds of people showed up. And I realized that we, we really needed to, to have a representative in office who listened to the constituents. You wanted to run to ensure there was proper representation, to ensure people had a voice that people were listening to. Absolutely. I mean, we have we I have a representative who, you know, he's voted against paid family leave. He's voted to take health care away from 74,000 people in our district alone last year. He votes. He's voted 17 times to defund Planned Parenthood and voted to take maternity coverage away from 13 million American women at a time where we have the worst maternal mortality rate in the developed world. And it was it was too much to watch. I, you know, running running for Congress was not a career move for me. It was it was a necessary decision to make sure that we had somebody who was going to stand up and fight back and talk about the issues that working families are facing all across our district and the country. The DCCC just released their retirements to watch list. One of the individuals on that list was Representative Peter King. Would you consider running again if he does retire? I am definitely thinking about it. I have I have not made a decision yet, but I am thinking about running again. Shortly after the 2018 midterm elections, you set up Vote Mama, which is an initiative to support and fund mums running for office. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a bit about the organization? What prompted you to set it up in the first place? So when I decided to run, my the hardest part in making that decision was how figuring out how to launch a campaign, how to run a campaign with a one-year-old and a three-year-old. There is no playbook for how to run for office, and there's certainly no playbook for how to do it with small children. Uh, you know, as, as I'm talking to you right now, I have my, my now two- and four-year-old in the other room playing and making a lot of noise, and that's, that's how I started this campaign. I started, you know, for the first six months, I didn't have a babysitter, and people looked at me and they said, oh, she's a mom with young children. You know, they didn't take me seriously. And that's what a lot of women face when they run with small kids. Donors don't take them as seriously. The press doesn't take them as seriously. Even voters don't because they don't think that they have the time to dedicate to running a campaign. You know, even even with this historic 116th Congress, there are still just 25 moms in office with children who are 18 or younger. And there are over 100 dads. And women face obstacles with, that men do not face. And this is something that we need to change. And without, without having that mentorship and the support, 
it's difficult. When women see other women running with children, they feel, hey, if she can do it, I can do it. And on one of the hardest days of my campaign, I had been at the doctor's all day with my son. He had broken his leg a week earlier. Elizabeth Warren called me for the first time that day. And, you know, our conversation quickly turned from politics to motherhood. And it was one of the most critical conversations I had during this campaign. It really, it helped keep me going. And that's what I want to provide for other moms who are running. I'm putting, I put together this incredible advisory committee. We've got representatives Katie Porter, Grace Meng, Gwen Moore, Terry Sewell, Kim Schreier, Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul. We've got state representatives. We've got women who have both run and won and run and lost up and down the ballot and across the country. And these women are going to, to serve as mentors and a, and a support system for the candidates that we endorse. And we want to also provide the funding. So when, when you are a young mom and you're just starting out, it's, it's hard to get that early money in the door to help you launch your campaign. We want to provide the funding, the mentorship, the support, the networking to the candidates that we endorse. And we, we launched a month ago. We've already received applications from more than 60 moms running in 25 different states. Vote Mama wants to level the playing field. It wants to make it easier for mums to run for office by tackling those areas where there might be stigma, where mums might sometimes be looked down upon by, say, donors or, or voters as not being able to run for office as well as other candidates. You want to level that playing field. You want to dispel those thoughts. Absolutely. There are there are three candidates that I was speaking with recently, and when they went for their for their screening process with their local Democratic Party, they were asked what they plan to do with their children while they run. That was a normal question that people thought, you know, that our Democratic Party leaders thought that they could ask. Meanwhile, they would never in a million years consider asking that of a man. And to be able to talk to other women who have been through that before is so helpful. And I mean, we're putting we're putting together moms who want to help out and who aren't running for office. We've put together a list of lawyers who will dedicate their services pro bono to new candidates. We've put together photographers who will give uh, free headshots to new candidates. We've put together a list of policy people who will help write policy platforms and policy formation and provide that support. We have people who've run campaigns before who will also assist in and helping some of our candidates with the, the bare bones structure of their campaigns and their and getting their hiring their staff and building their team. It's it's so important to make sure that we have a government that is actually reflective of our society. And if you have if you have more parents in Congress, more moms of young children, you'll start to change the conversation. We'll actually start talking about what universal child care looks like, what uh, paid family leave looks like, what what it looks like to actually invest in the education and, and you know, the next generation of Americans. You mentioned about how female candidates get asked questions that male candidates wouldn't be asked when they're applying to run for office or when they're running for office. How do you change that mindset? How do you change the minds of people when they're looking at female candidates who have young children? By having more moms run. The only way to change that mindset is to make people see that running for office is just what moms do. You know, my, my daughter, one of my, one of my favorite moments of the campaign, she was three years old and we went when Governor Cuomo announced New York's paid family leave program. And after he finished speaking, my daughter at three years old turned to me and she said, Mama, aren't you going to speak? And I said, no, baby, it's not my event. And she went right up to the podium and she asked me to pick her up. And my favorite photo from the campaign is her with her Peppa Pig dress at the podium giving her own speech. And for her, watching her mother run for office and give speeches has become normal. 
And when you see other moms running, when you see more people, you know, Abigail Spanberger, there's there's one of my favorite photos from her campaign is her giving her acceptance speech with her four-year-old between her legs. When you start to see more and more people doing that, and that becomes the norm. And it doesn't become this thing that reporters are so, you know, interested in. I had a reporter who said to me this year, she said, when did you, when did you decide to run as yourself? And I, I laughed. I said, well, what do you mean? Who else would I run as? And she said, you talk about your children. You talk about your family, your struggles, your life. And she said, was it a strategic decision? And I said, no, I just, you know, I, I started this campaign. I was still nursing my son. There is no way to separate being a mom of babies from who I was as a candidate. And they were the reason that I started to run in the first place. And so, you know, now you see Elizabeth Warren and Kirsten Gillibrand out running for president, talking about these issues, running as moms, where in the past women used to hide their identity as a mother. They used to not talk about their children, and they used to pretend that it was separate from who they are as people. And now this year we're starting to really see that change. We saw that a lot during the 2018 midterms and now with the presidential candidates focusing on their role as mothers and not shying away from that. I love that. So the more we see that happen, the more we see that discussion, that's how we start to change minds. One of the struggles that you faced during your campaign was the issue of childcare costs. It's something you've talked about publicly and you petitioned the Federal Election Commission and eventually became the first woman in history to receive federal approval to spend campaign funds on childcare. How important was the FEC's decision for you and other congressional candidates running for office? It was a game changer. It literally changed the way that people will run for office. And it was it was necessary for me to continue the campaign. I I've spent my entire career working in economic development and poverty alleviation. I do not have, I have never made more than six figures before I ran for Congress and running without a salary. I mean, most people don't realize when you run, you don't take a salary. It's, it's very rare that a candidate would take a salary from their campaign. And it's difficult because you are working 24 seven and somehow trying to also pay your school loans and your childcare and your mortgage and your taxes. And most working people can't afford to do that. So there's a very real reason that more than half of our Congress members are millionaires. You have to be independently wealthy to get into office. And I spent the first six months with no child care during the day. My mom is a public school teacher. She'd come home at 3.30 every day, and she'd watch my children then. But to run a congressional campaign, it's impossible to juggle the kids all day while trying to run. And by March of this last year, I realized I was really going to need help if I was going to continue to build the campaign. And we hired a part-time babysitter. And without approval to be able to use my campaign funds on childcare, I wouldn't have been able to continue my run. So it was, it was absolutely necessary for my campaign. And then we actually saw nine federal candidates take advantage of the ruling and use their campaign funds on childcare, including a man. And we've now seen women in eight different states put in similar requests. New York City has approved this, uh, Arkansas. Wisconsin, Texas, and Louisiana just reversed a ruling. Actually, um, last year, uh, candidate Morgan LaMondre, who's running in Louisiana, put in a request to the Louisiana Ethics Board, and they, they denied her request, even though they had approved it for four men in the past. And they actually told her that uh, her primary responsibility was to care for her children and that she had misplaced uh, priorities. I wrote a letter of support. Um, she had a, an appeal process this last week, and they reversed the decision and approved it. So we've literally changed the way that people are running for office and it will it will break down barriers and it will help level the playing field for working parents. You mentioned earlier about the conversation you had with Senator Elizabeth Warren during a particularly tough day 
on the campaign trail. You've described it as just the pep talk you needed at the time. And you recently had breakfast with Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, where you discussed the logistics of serving in public office whilst raising children. Mm-hmm. What advice did they give you and what advice could you give uh, from those conversations, from your own experience, to other mothers who might consider running for office? Senator Gillibrand, I mean, she gave birth during her first term in Congress, and it's incredible to be able to to see other women do that, because so many women will wait till their kids are grown before they even consider running, which is why women don't get into leadership positions until they're in their 60s and their 70s. And Senator Gillibrand just sat down and talked me through the logistics of, of, you know, she moved her family to Washington and she she makes sure that she takes one day a week that she spends with her family. And then she spends her time in the district and she goes back and forth to New York from D.C. and she makes sure that she spends the time with her constituents. But she also prioritizes family time. And that's unusual because most most representatives, most senators don't have the time to spend with their families. And it's it's. It's difficult. People want to serve. People want to be there to vote, to, to vote to help people, to be there to actually be a voice for their constituents. But what we're doing essentially is asking people to give up their children and their families in order to do that. And I love that Senator Gillibrand has found the balance between being a good mom, being there for her children, and still being there for her constituents. And after that breakfast, I mean, I walked out of there thinking you have to make sure that you have your priorities straight and that you can balance both schedules. And Senator Warren, you know, we, we ended up having a really great conversation and she has an Aunt B who who moved in with her and helped her take care of her children so she could be a law professor. And my mom, my mom lives with us and she, you know, she works still, but when she comes home from work, she helps watch the children and helps helps my husband and I raise them. And it's for families who don't have an Aunt B or my or a, you know a grandmother it's so difficult and it, you know, for the first time in, in, you know, 40 years, the percentage of women who are choosing to stay home after having children is actually increasing because they can't afford childcare. So now we see Elizabeth Warren talking about universal childcare and I think it's critical. That is such an important first step in actually strengthening our families, but strengthening our economy. So I think I think as long as you can run and you know that you don't have to wait till your children are grown and that you can prioritize your family life and your life serving, I think if you can see more women do that, more women will step up and and make that effort. How important was it for you having those examples of other mothers who've run for office, have managed to make it work like Senator Gillibrand, and to have those conversations to show there is a support network out there of other individuals who have proven that all these ideas and labels that are thrown at mothers who run for office are wrong. How important were those conversations for you? It's critical. I, When I first launched my campaign, I had no one to reach out to, no one to talk to. I mean, I remember Googling articles and finding a quote here or there from Senator Gillibrand or Representative Meng or somebody who had done it with small children before. But it's impossible when you're a new candidate and you don't have those connections already to, to have those conversations. So you might you might read an article, you might you know see them talk about it in a speech, but it's not the same thing as sitting down and getting to know someone and talking to them about their lived experiences. Because you know candidates are candidates and, and electeds are running around so much that when you actually do get to interact with someone, you don't get to have that 
real behind the scenes, no nonsense, this is what it's like conversation. And I jumped into my campaign, you know, so passionate about the issues and the ideas, but frankly, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. If you don't know someone who's run before, it's, it's really difficult. I happen to have a friend who's run for Congress before, and I talked to her, but she doesn't have children. So I didn't have that experience of what it was like for somebody with young kids to do that and to be able to have those conversations. And just, you know, if you are having a hard day to be able to reach out to somebody who's done it before and realize you're not alone. I mean, I've talked to Katie Porter about her experience and, you know, she's everybody asks her all the time, you know, what are you doing with your children? How are you managing it? Frankly, you know, you it's tiresome when people constantly question your skills as a mother. MJ Hager told me once, she said when people ask, you know, how is she going to manage that? She said it's, it's she tells people that it's insulting to her husband to think that her husband can't handle it while she's working. And that's the truth. I mean, you need to have a good support system. I have a wonderful husband and a wonderful mother who who helped me and uh, who were critical. But the, the, the conversations with elected officials and women who have run before with kids it is so important to know that you're not alone and that other people have been through it and can can relate to you. You highlight how one of the motivations behind setting up Vote Mama is to diversify a Congress that you describe as, quote, overwhelmingly male, wealthy and older than 50. Why is it so important to diversify Congress, have mothers among the elected officials there, as well as other diverse groups? Absolutely. We are... We are 27th in education in the world. We are the only country without uh, paid family leave other than Papua New Guinea. We are the only developed country without universal health care. A third of American children live in poverty. We have a student loan crisis. We have a gun violence crisis. These are reasons that we need to diversify Congress because we need to change the conversation that we're having at the table. 13 million American women, last year our representatives, my representative Peter King, who I ran against, voted to take health maternity coverage away from 13 million American women. We have the worst maternal mortality rate in the developed world, and black women will die at four times the rate as white women in this country. And that is a, a, a racial issue that we need to be addressing. And we're not addressing that. We need to get people in Congress who know what it's like not to be able to afford childcare, who understand that childcare in this country is actually more expensive than sending your kid to your teenager to a four-year public college. You need people in office who know at a visceral level what it's like not to have paid family leave. One in four women will go back to work 10 days after giving birth. That is literally a human rights crisis and a public health crisis. And that's what's happening in this country. You need people who are more concerned about the education and the well-being of children in this country than people who are more concerned about creating corporate tax cuts and loopholes for the wealthy. We need people who understand that investing in the education of American kids is what we need to be doing. We need someone who is not controlled by the NRA, who is more concerned because they're sending their children to school and they're watching their five-year-olds come home and tell them about lockdown drills. When you have people like that in office, you will pass common sense gun reform. And that's when you have when you have somebody in office who understands what it's like to rely on CHIP for their children's health care. You wouldn't have representatives to let the funding for the children's health insurance program lapse. When you have someone who knows how difficult it is to fight with insurance companies and go bankrupt because of health care bills. Almost half the people in this country who are in bankruptcy are there because of medical bills. When you have people who get that because that's their lived experience you will start to have people fighting for Medicare for all. Right now, when you have so many wealthy, older individuals in Congress, they are out of touch with most what, what most working families are going through. 
And that's why we're not seeing legislation that is actually making our society better, that is strengthening our economy. Inequality is at such a high at this moment. The wealthy are getting wealthier, and people in my district are working three jobs and can't put food on the table for their family. That needs to change. And the only way to change that is to change the voices at the table. We have a mass incarceration problem in this country. We have, you know, private prisons where people are making money off of incarcerating Americans. All of that needs to change. And that's why it's so critical to make sure that we diversify Congress. It might surprise people to know that in Congress, among 100 senators and 435 members of the House, there are only 25 mothers with children under the age of 18. That's just 5% of Congress. If there were more mothers of young children in Congress, do you believe that policies such as paid family leave, affordable and universal preschool education, quality childcare, the children's health insurance programme, gun control legislation, Medicare for all, would all be law, would be funded? Yes, absolutely. We have, if we had similar labour force participation rates to countries like Canada or Germany that have exactly what you're talking about, universal pre-quite, quality, affordable childcare and paid family leave, we would add, we'd have 5 million more women working in this country. We'd have $500 billion more in our economy. Every time someone says, oh, that's just a women's issue, the reality is that these are economic issues. We're, women are staying out of the workforce right now because we don't have things, policies that we need. Everybody, you know, will always say, oh, it's a woman's issue. It's a family issue. It's an American issue. It's an economic issue. And if we had more moms in office who understood that. If we had more working people in office, it doesn't have to be just mothers, but if we had more working people in office, we would start to see those policies change. And you're right. Right now, Congress is less than 5% moms with young children. That that needs to change. That's a critical voice. By the age of 44, 86% of women have become mothers. So if we're not supporting moms running for office, we are not supporting the vast majority of women in this country. You talked about the economic impacts there. One of the policies that you've advocated for daycare for all, you highlighted that it could be beneficial for the U.S. economy. There'd be 5.5 million more women working. It could add $500 billion to the U.S. economy. So do you think these economic arguments are overlooked because people say, as you pointed out there, these are just women's issues when actually they're economic arguments? Yes. So I don't know if you've seen Elizabeth Warren has a new universal child care policy that she's talking about. It's actually pretty incredible. It would be free for for some families and then other families would pay at a sliding scale. And the, the cost of daycare would not exceed 7% of a family's income. That is an incredible program and would be paid for with her millionaire tax, which only taxes people that, are, that make more than that have more than $50 million. So it's not going to increase taxes for most Americans, but it is something that will drastically change our economy in this country because so many people are staying home because they can't afford the cost of child care. And what that does is make sure that women's incomes over the course of their career will will stagnate. And then you see what we actually see now is older American women are much, they're living there as a much higher risk of poverty among older American women, because some people will, will stay home, will choose to take time out of their career because they can't afford childcare. But we also have, you know, a, a wage gap, even for the women that don't choose to stay home with children. Women are paid, you know, at, white women are paid at 86 cents, black women are paid at, at you know, 60, 
66 cents, I think, compared to a black man. And Latino women are paid at just 55 cents compared to a white man making a dollar. That changes the course of women's economic viability over the course of their lifetime. And that needs to change. You know, it's these are not women's issues. They're economic issues that affect every family in this country. And if you had quality, affordable childcare, you know, the U.S. military invests heavily in childcare for the military families and their children. They have daycare centers where the workers are paid livable wages and where they're trained in education. That is something that is so necessary because what people don't realize is that one of the problems, even at, even at credible daycare centers, is that the people who work there usually are female, by the way, but they're underpaid. They're sometimes even paid less than the minimum wage. So there's such high turnover at these daycare centers because the women who work there can't even afford to pay childcare for their own children because they're making $7 an hour that they, the turnover is so high. And that's also harming our children who are at daycare because they're not able to form bonds with the people who work there because they're there for such short periods of time. So these are all issues that compound on each other. It's not just an economic issue. It's also a development issue. It's an educational issue. It's a health issue. And it affects the way that our country is developing. And we can ignore this and we can say, oh, you know, pay for your own child care. Yes, but the cost of child care right now it's it's in, in almost 40 states. I think it's more than half of what a single mother makes, more than half of your income, the average single mother, more than half of that will go to daycare. So there is a very real reason why people are choosing to stay home when they have kids. It doesn't make sense for them to go to work just to spend all their money on child care. We need to have child care be affordable and we need universal pre-K. And we need to be investing in our public schools because an investment in our education and an early childhood development is the best thing we can do for our country, for our children, for our economy. Turning to other current political issues, on the 15th of February, Donald Trump declared a national emergency to obtain funds to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. You've been quite vocal about this on Twitter, but for the listeners, What's your take on his declaration and how would you urge your fellow Democrats to respond? <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable what we are seeing happening. Uh, we have a president who is undermining our Constitution, declaring a fake emergency. He, he even admitted himself that it wasn't an emergency, that he didn't need to do this, that he could, you know, he just wanted to do this because it would uh, get him get him where he wants to be quicker. We have real emergencies in this country. There are 40,000 veterans who are homeless on any given night. We have 28 million Americans without health care. We have the sea levels arising at the fastest rate in thousands of years. And, and this is, these are real federal emergencies. And yet we have a president who is making up a fake emergency. A national emergency is the fact that, that we have an administration who is separating children from their parents, breastfeeding babies from their mothers at the border, and, and not allowing people to apply for asylum. That is a national emergency. The fact that guns kill twice as many American children as cancer does, that is a national emergency. And to see our president stamp his feet, he held millions of Americans hostage when he shut down the government. Millions of Americans did not know where their next paycheck was coming. And Donald Trump said, oh, they'll, they'll just figure out how to make ends meet. The reality is he doesn't have a clue what it feels like to count on a paycheck to buy food and to pay your mortgage. And he, after holding millions of Americans hostage, he's now declaring a fake emergency to take money from real emergencies to build a wall. And it's, it's disgraceful. 
Uh, there's no other word for it. This is this was a campaign promise that he promised Mexico would pay for. Clearly, Mexico was never going to pay for it. Now he's held the government hostage and hold Americans hostage. Didn't get his way then. So now he's done this. He is a child having a temper tantrum. And we need to make sure that we are standing up to this. You mentioned some issues there that you believe are real emergencies. If a Democrat wins the presidency in 2020, what issue would you like them to tackle, if any, by declaring a national emergency? I think that declaring national emergencies should be held, you know, for for real national emergencies. When we had when we had the 9-11 terrorism attack, that was a national emergency. When you have a hurricane that that affects people where people lose their homes, those those are national emergencies. I don't want to see even I, I you know if it's a Republican or a Democrat, I don't want to see them skirt the Constitution or our political process or, you know, the or Congress. I want to see them work with Congress to pass Medicare for all, to pass common sense gun reform, to pass a new Green Deal. I, I think the national emergency should be kept for real national emergencies. In response to a tweet from Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, which said student debt is at a crisis level in this country and it holds a whole economy down. You responded by stating that it's also holding people back from running for office and that cutting school loan rates would jumpstart our economy. What steps would you like to see Congress make to tackle the student debt crisis? We need to cut rates. The government should not be making money off of the debt of students. We need to, we need, we need more affordable schools, but we need to cut interest rates. We need to allow students to refinance. Some of my graduate loans I'm paying 8% interest rates on. So if you get out of school and you're trying, you know, you're trying to pay off your loans, for the most part, you're paying, you're paying interest for a long time before you actually get to the, the major part of your loan. We also need to allow students to declare bankruptcy if they need to. That should be a last resort, of course. But right now, if you're if you cannot pay your school loans and you you are stuck and you want to declare bankruptcy, you can't discharge your school loans. I think that people in this country should absolutely be able to discharge their loans through bankruptcy. But the first step is to make sure that we are lowering interest rates so that people can actually afford to pay back their school loans. On the one year anniversary of the Parkland school shooting, you praise the vocal activists who've built the March for Our Lives movement to campaign for stricter gun control laws. We've seen the Democratic majority in the House start to take action since they regained control in January, holding hearings, introducing legislation. What legislation do you want to see introduced? What steps do you want politicians to take to tackle gun control laws? We need universal background checks. Uh, that is the first thing. Nearly 70% of gun sales do not, do not have background checks. And you can technically walk into a gun show. Uh, you can walk into a gun store, fail a background check, and then walk into a gun show and legally buy that weapon. We need universal background checks. We need to ban assault weapons. We need to ban the AR-15. There is no reason that a weapon of war that was built specifically to kill people in battle, there is no reason that that weapon should be held or legally purchased by any civilian. Our former assault weapons ban wasn't even really a weapons, an assault weapons ban. It was a, an accessories ban. You could change the accessory on a gun and make a gun go from being a, an illegal gun to a legal gun. We need a real assault weapons ban. 
And I'm, I'm happy to see that, you know, in New York State, we passed the red flag bill. They're actually signing that in next week and that will allow, it will allow teachers and parents to be able to flag when a, when a, someone, a child or when someone is a, as a threat to themselves or others that they can actually flag that. I think that that is, is critical to making sure that we keep guns out of the hands of people who will harm people with them. There is no reason that we should have high magazine capacity weapons. I, you know, I, I understand the Second Amendment. I understand wanting to have a gun legally purchased going through a background check. And I've got to tell you, almost every American who is a, who is a gun holder who, who goes through the proper process to get a gun wants universal background checks and supports that. And that's, that's the first thing we need to pass. Do you believe one reason politicians in Congress have failed to take any major action on gun control? Why until the hearing earlier this month, there hasn't been a hearing in Congress on gun control in eight years. Mm-hmm. It's because of the influence of the NRA and the NRA's donations to elected officials. Absolutely. That is exactly the problem with money in politics in general, because you have to listen to your donors. And if you are taking millions of dollars from the NRA, that's who you're listening to. And the NRA threatens representatives, people who even, even if they uh, don't take campaign contributions from the NRA, if they stand up and fight for common sense gun reform, they will then have take everything that they have and fight to make sure that they elect somebody who will run against that person and make sure that they help that person get elected. And that's that's exactly the problem. You are controlled by who gives you money and people are people need to stand up. We need to have representatives who are not beholden to the NRA who are more concerned about what we're putting our children through. Do you know that since the Columbine massacre in 1999, that was the year after I graduated high school, more than 150,000 children have lived through a school shooting, have experienced a school shooting. My daughter is starting kindergarten next year, and one of the first things I talked to her teachers about, you know, I wanted to know what to expect. She's going to have to start going through lockdown drills next year. We are traumatizing an entire generation of Americans, and even, God forbid, if they never go through if they never live through an actual shooting, but they go to school and they have to go through the shooting drills, the active shooter drills, the lockdown drills, that's that's traumatizing children. We have kids who are growing up with PTSD because they're afraid to go to school because they're afraid that a gunman is going to come in and kill them. And you, you have representatives who say, oh, thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers is not enough. We need people who stand up to the NRA and who will fight. We, you know, for this is the first time we're actually having hearings in eight years. For years, we haven't had, we haven't been allowed to use uh, any congressional funds on research into gun violence. We spend a lot of money on, on, on researching what happens with uh, with cars and car safeties and car accidents. And because of that research, we've put, you know, we've instituted seatbelt laws and, and uh, child seat laws and, and, and changed, you know, we put airbags into cars and we've made it much safer to drive. This is common sense. We should be using funding to research gun violence so that we can actually pass some laws that will will keep our children safe. Right now, you can't go to a synagogue. You can't go to church. You can't go to a movie theater. You can't go to school without worrying about being killed. Real things that, that children are fearful of. And this is this is something that's affecting people all across the country, from the inner cities to the suburbs to the country. We need to pass common sense gun reform. Do you think now that Democrats have control of the House, there is a chance that common sense gun control laws will get through, or do you think they'll just get blocked when they get to the Senate or vetoed when they get to the White House? They will get blocked when they get to the Senate, and if, if anything actually got through, I'm sure that Donald Trump would veto it. But we need to make sure that we take back the Senate as well. 
we talked earlier about Senator Elizabeth Warren, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, both have announced that they're seeking the Democratic nomination for president. Out of the candidates that have declared they're running or those that have expressed interest in running, do you personally have a preferred candidate or who would you like to see secure the Democratic nomination? I don't, actually. I am excited about this election season. I think it's going to be an incredible primary. We have a diverse field of amazing candidates. I'm happy to see five women running already. And I'm looking forward to to the debates. I'm looking forward to the, the policy discussions. And I think it's going to be a really interesting year and a half. Do you believe 2020 could be the moment that a woman finally cracks the highest glass ceiling in America and becomes president? I certainly hope so. Where can people find out more information about Vote Mama and get involved with the organization? They should go to our website. It's VoteMama, and it's M-A-M-A dot org. You can sign up to volunteer. You can make a donation. You can learn more about how to apply for our support if you yourself are thinking of running. And we would love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. It's VoteMamaUS. We would love to hear from you. Luba Gretsch and Shirley, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. Have a great day. That was Luba Gretsch and Shirley, the founder of Vote Mama and the former congressional candidate in New York's 2nd Congressional District. That's all for this week. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give us a five-star rating on iTunes and subscribe. Until next time, goodbye.